Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Hidden History. You know, normally when you think about Richard Nixon... You probably know him, think of him as a crook and not really someone who is so much of a good guy because really of that Watergate scandal, him breaking into that Democratic office and then trying to cover it up and all those lies and those scandals. Well, what if I told you he did something much, much worse? Well, he did. Today, we'll take you through the little known story of how in the run up to the 1968 election. Richard Nixon with his back up against the wall and Lyndon Johnson furiously trying to save his campaign and end the Vietnam War. How Richard Nixon used a secret woman, in fact, on the inside of the South Vietnamese government to sabotage the peace talks, causing millions of Americans lives and more years of awful, awful war. A really kind of unknown situation that was really just revealed as recently as 2007 and really has in terms of the broad popular culture and recognition of uh, Nixon you know it is kind of insane that he is so much more dealt you know known for this very much kind of Washington intrigue story where you know like it or not the biggest thing that happened was you know some documents and information was stolen whereas you know this is some this is a crime that has cost you know demonstrably millions and millions of lives uh, both on the American side and especially on the Vietnamese side. So I'll take you in the, into this here with um, John A. Farrell writing here in the history department for Political Magazine. He's the author of Richard Nixon, The Life. Richard Nixon's telephone calls came regularly during the 1968 campaign. H.R. Haldeman, the chief of staff of Nixon eventually, took meticulous notes, jotting down the instructions he received from the candidate. Sometimes Nixon needed to blow off steam demanding that a reporter from the Washington Post, the Times, be banned from his campaign airplane for writing an offending story. Times would post off. Haldeman recorded, Times forever. One such call came at midnight from Nixon's co-op apartment on Fifth Avenue. Haldeman duly noted that the stirring score to the World War II documentary Victory, Victory at Sea, uh, which Nixon so enjoyed, was playing on a phonograph in the background. Other calls were steeped in... S- uh, steeped in intrigue. In one series of scribbles, Haldeman reported Henry Kissinger's willingness to inform on his U.S. diplomatic colleagues and keep Nixon updated on President Lyndon Johnson's furious 11th hour efforts to end the Vietnam War. So at this point, Henry Kissinger um, was, who was at the time an American diplomat, who was very much well informed on what was going on, and he realized that, you know, for largely for political reasons and for, you know, uh, because he knew the war wasn't really going to go anywhere. Lyndon Johnson, ahead of his 1968 re-election, 
was frantically trying to end the war. He knew if he didn't come up with a war, I mean, there was pretty much no point in him running for a second term. So Haldeman was Nixon's campaign chief of staff. He was a devoted political adjutant since the 1950s. In November 1968, the two men connected on what became known as the Chinoa Affair. Nixon gave Haldeman his orders. Find ways to sabotage Johnson's plans to stage productive peace talks so that a frustrated American electorate would turn to the Republicans as their only hope to end the war. Their um, gambit worked, and the Cheneau affair, named for Anna Cheneau, the Republican Joanne and fundraiser became Nixon's back channel to the South Vietnamese government, lingered as a diplomatic and political whodunit for decades. Johnson and his aides suspected his treachery at the time. Poor Americans were eavesdropping on their South Vietnamese allies. You know, when have we not ever resisted the temptation to eavesdrop on anyone? I mean, we like we our presidents up until Nixon obviously taped all their conversations in the White House. Um, so yeah, they were pretty much hesitated. You know, really the the most remarkable thing about this is here they they hesitated to to really go in on it because they thought you know with all the intense incredible kind of social and political ferment of the 1960s that it just would have been too much like if we had went out and accused a member of the Republican party of just you know trying to keep american troops in the war for longer just for its own political you know uh benefit you know he apparently told them the south vietnamese at the time saying you know oh we can get a better deal you know don't worry about it don't worry about it I don't know if that's a very, you know, good Nixon there. Nixon, yeah, he's just steadfastly denied involvement up until his death while lawyers fended off efforts to obtain campaign records from the 1968 campaign. It wasn't until after 2007 when the Nixon Presidential Library finally opened up Haldeman's notes to the public that uh, the biographer here stumbled upon a smoking gun in the course of conducting research for his biography of Nixon. Four pages of notes, his brush-cut aided scroll laid on, oct- on one October evening in 1968. Keep Anna know working on SVN. South Vietnamese, Haldeman wrote, as Nixon barked orders on the phone. They were out to monkey wrench Johnson's election eve initiative, and it worked. So the following account of the Chanel affairs, the most up-to-date and revealing of Nixon's intrigue, the product of hours of archival research, open records, requests and a little luck documenting the cynical maneuvers is important for history's sake but the fact that it took nearly 50 years for Nixon's secret to emerge offers vital lesson for today it shows how hard it is to find definitive proof of collaboration with foreign power you know this is to be about you know president donald trump and uh you know yada 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 about russia but we're interested in the history part here so he writes nixon was especially anxious on the night of October 22nd, 1968, he had entered the fall campaign with formidable lead over VP Hubert Humphrey, but the polls were narrowing as working-class Democrats returned to the party. So it was a very kind of an interesting situation here, October 22nd, 1968. So pretty much it was a very contentious campaign um, on the Democratic side after it was finally announced that, um, you know, at this point, you know, run up to 1968 election, it was it was pretty clear that, you know, A, Johnson wouldn't run for a second term, and B, the absolute brawl that Democrats had over the complete kind of fracturing of their coalition, you know, this this wedge driven in between this, on one side, a young kind of student movement uh, kind of class of people who really were ready to burn it down and, you know, in an attempt to stop the war in the 1968 convention, then the compromise was made, Humphrey was put in place as this kind of like, uh, you know, real representation of the old kind of establishment coalition of the Democrats who were deeply tied to the labor movement, but did not think of themselves first as workers, but thought of themselves first as homeowners. Um, and, you know, Hubert Humphrey here was pulling in as the working class Democrats returned to the party and Johnson's efforts to make peace 
made news. Nixon believed he would prevail unless a major event reset the political topography, and he knew Johnson knew that too, as did the Soviet Union. So Kremlin leaders had never much liked the red-baiting anti-communist Nixon to keep him from the Oval Office and help Humphrey become president. They were meddling in the U.S. presidential campaign and pressing their clients in North Vietnam to agree to a ceasefire and hold constructive talks to end the war. According to Haldeman's notes, Kissinger alerted the Nixon campaign late September and early in October that something was up. So Kissinger at this time uh, was kind of their man on the inside. So here, they were pretty much coming to the realization that, you know, it really looked like from both sides that to come up to, you know, kind of come together to stop Nixon, that the Soviets and LBJ, who had that one kind of common interest, would come together to try to stop the Vietnam War, at least, you know, significantly many years early. Seven years of just complete death could have been avoided here, which is kind of incredible. Um, so according to Haldeman's notes, yeah, they, they alerted him that something was up. Uh, Nixon had no influence in Moscow or Hanoi, but he was not completely vulnerable to the events. He had that pipeline in Saigon where South Vietnamese President Nguyen Van Chu and his associates feared that LBJ was selling them out. If two would drag his feet and stall the proposed peace talks, Nixon can portray Johnson's failed peace initiative as a desperate political trick. But to do so, Nixon had to get the word to Chu and tell him to stand firm. Nixon's main conduit was Chino, the Chinese-American widow of Claire Chino, the American aviator who led the squadrons of flying tigers into behalf uh, into battle on behalf of China against Japanese invaders during World War II. She had many friends in the palaces of South Vietnam, Nationalist China, and other pro-Western countries on the Asian Rim. Nixon told, uh, also told Haldeman to have Rosemary Woods, the Kansas secretary, and contact another member of the pro-nationalist China lobby, businessman Louis Kung, and tell him to pressure Chu as well. She was going to get Kung to go going in on the SVN and telling them to hold firm. That's what Nixon wanted Haldeman to do. Um, so Nixon's campaign sabotage of Johnson's peace prospects, prospects was successful. Nine days later, Chu's decision to boycott the talks headlined the New York Times and other U.S. newspapers. They got him to do that key step. Uh, pretty much reminded American voters of the long Harvard mistrust of the Wheeler and Dealer, uh, LBJ, and his big credibility gap on Vietnam and Humphrey. Really, his momentum faded, and Nixon won in a very kind of close race. Um, so LBJ, he... You know, he'd been wiretapping this whole time. He knew what was going on. His national security advisor, Walt Rostow, urged him to unmask Nixon's treachery. Humphrey's aides told their boss to expose the episode and disgrace their Republican foes. But Johnson and Humphrey balked. They did not have the conclusive proof that Nixon had personally directed their actions, uh, you know, which was something that they really needed if they were going to make such a kind of destabilizing um, accusation so soon. And so Nixon won the 1968 election and led America further into carnage in Southeast Asia. In the years that followed, many elements of the Chino affair came into light, but Nixon stuck by his details uh, and his denials that he participated in the scheme. Lack of evidence of Nixon's direct involvement gave pause to historians and offered his loyalists a platform from which to defend him on, but no longer, as Haldeman's notes, are the long-sought evidence that Nixon personally intervened to scuttle Johnson's efforts to end the war. It's now possible to reconstruct the events of October in November 1968, with the inescapable conclusion that Nixon's behavior was devious, tragic, and given the lives at stake, arguably more, you know, I don't think arguably more reprehensible than his activities in the Watergate scandal. Ladies and gentlemen, listeners of the Spencer Walsh Radio Network, happy holidays, and thank you so much for supporting us this year. We are 
willing to give the gift of audio to you this holiday season. And boy, will it keep coming. We have an action-packed schedule through the 17th of December to the 16th of January. And that all starts with new episodes of Newsflash now three times a week on our old summer schedule of Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. In addition, Hidden History returns with six select episodes, four on Tuesdays and two on select Thursdays, to give you the perfect historical narrative to keep you interested through those times with the family this holiday season. It's been such a great year, and it couldn't have been as good for the Spencer Bulls Radio Network without your support. So, to another year of great audio. So, we're talking about uh, Nixon here and Haldeman and these notes that really kind of proved this evidence. And how did Haldeman's notes really, this is the question, escape that public scrutiny for almost 50 years? When Nixon took office in January 1969, Haldeman was rewarded for his decades of service with the job of White House Chief of Staff. He had built a centralized organization that in many aspects remains a preferred model today, kind of setting the model for the first kind of real Chief of Staff uh, you know, White House org chart, I guess. No detail. The gross list for the president's vacation home in Key Biscayne, the wages of the gardeners of the Western White House in San Clemente, California. The supply of toilet paper at Camp David was beyond his purview. So at the Nixon presidency, he spent hours in the Oval Office recording the president's instructions on matters great and small. In the spring of 1972, nearing the end of Nixon's first term, Haldeman ordered a general reorganization of the White House filing system. His aides selected the most sensitive documents from the White House central files and placed them in a group uh, that was called the White House Special Files. The Special Files were pretty much a greatest hits collection of Nixon and pretty much all the dirty things that he did. Um, so when Nixon resigned in 1974, aides to his successor, George Gerald Ford, ordered the president, Congress, and Watergate prosecutors that truckloads of Nixon's papers were being shipped to San Clemente. Ford, Ford uh, put a stop to that process, in the, infuriating the exiled ex-president and Congress enacted special legislation, effectively seizing the documents from and you know those famous White House tapes that would kind of come out, you know, proving like the smoking gun stuff and all of that. You know, Ford generally, you know, the biggest probably political mistake that he ever made was pardoning Nixon. Was, you know, you, he could, he could definitely you could tell here. You know, through his actions, that he knew it, and you know, as much as possible, I think his his biggest goal, because you know, he wasn't too much of a political striver, like the ultimate guy, you know, the only president we've ever had to never be elected as president or vice president, you know, somebody who, really, when it came down to it, just was not really quite supposed to be there, and just trying to keep various groups happy. Um, so, all previous chief executives have retained control of their papers and choose to bequeath them to their heirs, heirs sell them, or store them at the presidential library. Nixon had sound grounds to contest the government's seizure of his tapes and papers, especially those of a personal or purely purely political nature. He went to court and his... Um, uh, this is the funny thing. Yeah, he went to court and his legal team scored victory after victory. Um... After one favorable decision, uh, a, the aide Monica Crowley, who I believe is on Fox News now, I'm not sure, uh, later reported the elated former president sat down at the piano and banged out, happy days are here again. Nixon, fretted with good cause about his legacy by the time of his death in 1994, succeeded in keeping all but a few reels of the White House tapes, uh, tens of thousands of sensitive documents from historians and biographers, but the tapes did begun to trickle out in 1996, so yeah, it was really only his death that kind of opened up the floodgates. So, 700 of the 
3,600 hours of conversation are still being processed today from these special files. Uh, much of these... So yeah, these files here, they are slowly starting to trickle out. And the 1962 folders uh, contain notes uh, from a strategy meeting in which Nixon, Haldeman, and other top advisors pretty much are deciding, you know, which rival candidates to, you know, phone tap and tail and all that stuff. Long before Watergate, Nixon was fascinated with such sneakery. In yet another file in the Nixon library, I found a page, this is again the biographer talking, of reminders he had written to himself against his for, for his first campaign against in Congress against the Democratic incumbent Jerry Voorhis in 1946, uh, set up spies in V camp. He had scribbled. Haldeman is known as Nixon's kind of alter ego, the highest ranked White House uh, aide to go to prison for his Watergate era crimes, for t- participating in the smoking gun conversations that incriminated Nixon, and for the meticulous Haldeman diaries published as a best selling book in 1994. Until the Nixon campaign taping system was installed. In uh, early 1971, Haldeman's notes and diary entries form the best, most candid record of his internal reckonings. His notes from the 1968 campaign are equally essential if you're trying to kind of understand all the kind of intense, intense political uh, ferment that was happening both within the country and kind of within the right wing at the time as Nixon really was so kind of very much obsessed and kind of making, you know, isolating a lot of people, you know, who in the government, for example, um, people with deep, deep ties to uh, Republican and governmental forces that go beyond and, get, you know, came much before Nixon. Uh, you know, people, for example, in the State Department establishment who Henry Kissinger uh, and Nixon really, really alienated by kind of basing their own foreign policy pretty much all around him. And, you know, Nixon viewing this time as a time to really make his own foreign policy, which, you know, he cared much, much more about than domestic policy. Um, and, you know, State Department people and other people, let's just say, not liking that very much. Um, so, and then, of course, you have the 1968 campaign as well. And this is where the Southern strategy took place and the threat to unravel at the Republican National Convention in Miami with the South delegates yearning to switch to more conservative Ronald Reagan. So this is really um, a kind of a moment where, where Nixon had been in this for a long time, kind of representing the two wings, you know, the more... Uh, normal right, and then the kind of, um, you know, kind of the base. Uh, Reagan represented very much the base, and then, you know, Nixon represented someone who could kind of bring together the base with the, the more elite and the kind of business class people. Um, Haldeman recorded how Nixon dispatched his campaign manager, John Mitchell, to register Peter O'Donnell, the Texas state Republican chairman, with a message of cool off the Southerners. Um, they should know, Nixon said, in choosing a running mate that he would not ram someone down your throat. They should also know that Nixon will bring peace on civil rights and lay off the pro-Negro cap, the most explicit promise that I found from a candidate who preferred to cloak his position on segregation and euphemistic talk about pushy liberal bureaucrats and the folly of court-ordered busing. Uh, Haldeman has also noted that Nixon's musings about a best deal with the third-party candidate of Alabama, candidacy of Alabama Governor George Wallace, which he kind of worried about splitting the vote. So, RN has emotional access to lower middle class white, not fair to call them racist, but concerned regarding crime, violence, law and order. Haldeman noted the Roman Catholic minorities, Irish, Italian, Pole, Mexican, were afraid of Negroes and should be targeted after the convention. Need stronger end position on this operationally must do something, Nixon said, must dry up Wallace vote. So pretty much using, you know, pretty much all for political purposes here. You know, we got to, you know, hammer in on those like law and order, like silent majority, like Negro fears. And, you know, bringing all these kind of Roman Catholic groups under in this working class base um, as well. So, 
a very, very interesting situation. So, and you also see some kind of early hints of Watergate this time, with Nixon telling Hall to leak word to a friendly journalist that Humphrey and the campaign manager, Lawrence O'Brien, uh, had potentially embarrassing ties to an eccentric defense contractor, billionaire Howard Hughes. Have learned unimpeachable source, Nixon told Haldeman, H.H. Son has been on H. Hughes' payroll and O'Brien is financed by H. Hughes. Interesting, interesting. Howard Hughes, you know, looking at his his deep ties to, you know, some of those same potentially anti-Nixon forces uh, that I was mentioning earlier. In 1960, John Kennedy's campaign had effectively exploited the news of a Hughes loan to the Nixon family, raising questions of influence peddling, then how did Nixon for years? His White House files showed that his obsession with the O'Brien-Hughes relationship never waned. In 1972, O'Brien's office at the Democratic National Committee would become a target of the Watergate burglars. Um, yeah, but the true, really, again, the true morsels, or the true big chunks here came from the Chinoa affair and kind of confirming the Chinoa affair and just, again, highlighting this incredible, incredible treachery that he, he frankly put up there. So, um, you really kind of, more than Watergate, more than anything, he really feared the disclosure of the Chinoa affair. Uh, he lied right from the start to Johnson, who was trying to keep Nixon, Humphrey, and Chu on board the peace train, saying, I would never do anything to encourage Saigon not to come to the table. Nixon telling LBJ as a conversation captured on the Johnson White House taping system. Uh, the denials continued through the years to his friend and biographer, Jonathan Aiken. Uh, Nixon dismissed the Chinook canard and uh, insisted he never participated in any such plot. In his memoir, R.N., Nixon never mentioned Cheneau. To David Frost, in their celebrated 1977 televised interviews, Nixon was categorical. I did not, I did, sorry, I did nothing to undercut them, he said to the Peace Talks. As far as Madame Cheneau or any number of other people, I did not authorize them, and I had no knowledge of any contact with Southern, you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, the former president had good cause to prevaricate. Um... Nixon's actions to sabotage the peace talks were highly inappropriate, if true, as Kissinger later put it. You know, obviously, Kissinger and Nixon working together on these. Um, so, it does seem, yeah, as Kissinger you know, later put it, he was trying to, you know, in seeming in violation of law prohibits private citizens from trying to defeat measures of the United States or otherwise meddle in its diplomacy. You know, pretty much what they're doing here as candidate and not as President Nixon would be pretty much, you know, Blatant treason, like that blatant treason. Uh, but you know they should be fined under this title in prison, in prison not more than three years or both. Uh, so you know this is this is what you get there for trying to you know sabotage a possible end to a war where you know hundreds of thousands of Americans are dying and you know tons more you know countless Vietnamese civilians are you know going out. So that's the Logan Act. Uh, was enacted by the founders to address such a situation. It was named for George Logan, who conducted a private negotiation with the French government during the administration of President John Adams. Logan, a member of the political opposition, used the notoriety to win election to the U.S. Senate. And you can kind of see why people, you know, would not want that happening. Two, two different people representing the United States. Very dangerous situation. But by the time election day had come and gone, there were far too many interests aware of Chino's actions, or... Uh, you know, the White House, the FBI, the South Vietnamese, and the Nixon and the Humphrey campaigns to keep a lid on the scandal. So journalists Drew Pearson, Tom Otnad, uh, Theodore Weiss, uh, Jules Whitcover, and Seymour Hersh advanced the story bit by bit, writing over the years. But so did book writing Johnson officials, administration officials Clark Clifford and William Bunny and University of Virginia scholar Ken Hughes. In 2014 book, Chasing Shadows, uh, Inna Chanel did write a memoir divulging some details, as did Buidem the South Vietnamese ambassador to the United States at the time. The biggest break 
came when trustees at the Lyndon Johnson Presidential Library decided to ignore Rostow's instructions and make public the tapes and files that LBJ had wanted to steal. The 1994 opening of the so-called X envelope, which included reports of the FBI surveillance of Chanel, and the 2008 release of the Johnson tapes from the 1968 election caused a sensation. More recently, the Nixon Presidential Library, fulfilling open records requests that I and two other scholars had made, released an oral history and two long-written reports by the Nixon White House aide, Tom Houston, who had been tasked by Haldeman to collect evidence on the episode for potential use against Johnson. So in a February 25th, 1970 memo attached to an 11-page report, Houston warned Haldeman the evidence in this case did not dispel the notion that we were somehow involved in the Chanel affair, and while releasing some of this information would be most embarrassing to President Johnson, it would not be helpful to us either. What remained, though, as I started working on biography of Nixon in 2011, again, biography for obviously writing here, was that one final and elusive and most important piece of the puzzle, uh, the direct evidence of Nixon's involvement in the return White House special files provided that proof. So all in all, you know, what we come down to here is looking at the situation is a, um, you know, we're talking about seven more years of just war, destruction, and death here for two more presidents like Gerald Ford was the one, you know, we had the fall of Saigon and that, you know, kind of fully, fully ending things. But in the end, you know, if you if you remember Tricky Dick for anything, I you know, you know a lot of people are going to remember him for, for Watergate, you know, just for how that was covered and how that was perceived. Um, but the fact what he did here, his kind of direct involvement, sending Chanel in there to stop that peace deal for just that one time, Nixon coming in trying to act like, you know, hey, I could better get, get it, come in, get a better deal here. Went and you know that was just where some of the worst brutalities of the Vietnam War happened. Just use of you know aggressive bombing campaign, use of chemical weapons, all that kind of just horrific, horrific stuff. Um, and all that was just completely uh, could have been completely unnecessary if Chanel just hadn't got there. Uh, Chu hadn't stalled the peace talks, all that kind of thing. Uh, you know, and the incredible impact that it ha- had on you know the war, our culture, and you know the country of Vietnam for many, many years to come, I think cannot be overlooked. And I think, without a doubt, the true worst crime of the Nixon administration, in which, you know, like most presidential administrations, there were numerous. All right. Hidden History returns again on Tuesday. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show.